do not attempt to adjust the settings on your device. The sounds you hear are not hallucinations. You have entered the mind of someone that has a taste for the macabre, the strange, the unusual, and the morbid. Don't be shy. Step inside, warm up your mug, and enjoy your visit into the world that is the nightcap. Welcome, friends, to the Nightcap, where nothing is taboo or wicked, and the topics are always eerie and intriguing. If you're a first-time listener, then you're in for a ride. For everyone else, welcome back. Before we begin, I want to thank Here on Mars for providing the illustration for this program. He is also a very accomplished musician with multiple releases of techno rock and other experimental tunes. His latest CD titled Alien, as well as other albums, can be purchased on Bandcamp. You can also stream his music on Spotify and watch some of his live streams on YouTube where he mixes music live so you get a first-hand experience of its process. I promise you won't be disappointed. I would also like to thank Nocturnal for providing ongoing ambient tracks for this podcast. Based out of Louisiana, this man creates some of the most unique EDM and trance beats you'll ever hear. He has been a gracious artist loaning me the use of his music for years, and I sincerely thank him. His latest EP titled Lo-Fi Avenue is a great album that is definitely worthy of your time, and you can listen to it on Spotify as well as YouTube. So please, support these great artists because they work very hard to provide you with some amazing beats that are positive, unique, and fresh. Links to their channels and websites will be in the episode description. Tonight's torrid topic is guaranteed to catch your attention and make you think twice about what you think you know about one of the most tragic and evil points in human history, the Holocaust. Most of us have a general understanding of systematic slaughter of an entire culture, including those caught in the crossfire, such as homosexuals, lesbians, blacks, gypsies, but the true depth to which this went is so insidious and so unbelievably brutal and despicable that none of us will ever really know the whole story. Still, the involvement Germany had is sometimes scrutinized by historians and others as the entire country being complicit, and when they denied not knowing that the concentration camps existed, there was an outcry from soldiers, volunteers, and surrounding countries wanting justice. However, the truth is that most Germans indeed knew next to nothing about the train cars hauling bodies or the smokestacks spewing the ashes of the victims into the sky. Many camps had guards, commandants, and various personnel from the SS involved to ensure that the final solution became a success for their Fuhrer. Most facilities were work camps, but the largest, such as Birkenau and Auschwitz, were purely well-oiled murder machines that unloaded scared and helpless prisoners, sorted them into groups, separating their families, choosing the ones that looked strong to be on disposal duty, and send the rest to facilities that look like showers, only to meet their untimely demise in a one-way ticket to Zyklon B afterlife. These are only a fraction of the atrocities committed by some Nazis that believe so strongly in ethnic cleansing that they willfully killed those that did nothing to them. You're probably thinking, yes, I know the story, and it is horrifying. I'm sure you were taught about Joseph Mengel, aka the Angel of Death, or various lieutenants that chose who lived and who died. What I guarantee you didn't learn is who else volunteered to be in charge of these places. The ones who never really truly served, but had an entire separate program set aside for the devoted ones, similar to Hitler Youth. In my opinion, these individuals are worse than any man you have read about in school, because I am, of course, talking about the women of the SS. 
Oh, you probably believe German Fräuleins were either collaborators or supported their husbands in their Nazi endeavors, hating Jews in their own way. How wrong you are. There were some women that were so hate-filled and in favor of the Jewish solution that they went further than any man could ever go. And I must warn you before I reveal the most notorious ones. I feel it's important to go into a brief history on how said women got involved before getting into the most notorious and most sadistic examples. 5,000 female guards had the overseer or attendant rank. In 1942, the first female guards arrived at Auschwitz and Majenik from Ravensbrück. The year after, the Nazis began conscripting women because of a shortage of male guards. Later female guards were dispersed to other various subcamps, detention camps, and other posts. Most female guards were generally from the lower to middle class and had no relevant work experience. Their occupational background varied. One source mentions former matrons, hairdressers, tram car conductresses, opera singers, or retired teachers. Volunteers were recruited via advertisements in German newspapers asking for women to show their love for the Reich and join the SS Gelforge, which was a support and service organization for women at this time. Additionally, some were conscripted based on data in their SS files. Adolescent enrollment in the League of German Girls acted as a vehicle of indoctrination for many of the women. It was claimed by some former overseers at post-war hearings that her female guards were not full-fledged SS women. Consequently, at some tribunals, it was disputed whether SS Helfernin employed at the camps were official members of the SS, thus leading to conflicting court decisions. Many of them belonged to the Waffen-SS or the other SS Helfernin Corps, which had the ranks as follows. Chief Senior Overseer, Camp Leader, Senior Overseer, First Guard, Report Leader, Work Recording Leader, Work Input Overseers, Block Leader, Work Squad Leader, Dog Guide Overseer, Overseer, and Arrested Overseer. It was also encouraged by top advisors and generals such as Heinrich Himmler that the male guards treat the female guards as equals and sexual relations between the two genders were openly apparent to all involved. Even more disturbing is the amount of embezzlement between overseers said to have stolen millions of Reich marks, which was the official currency of the Third Reich. Not all the female guards were captured. Some fled Germany when the Allies came. However, because of a statute of limitations, confusing guidelines and territory, and other struggles after the war, there weren't enough resources to lend. Most of the focus had been on the men. Those that did slip away were too old to be tried by the time they were tracked down and they could not be prosecuted. Now that you know the basics, here is where you find out about the darkest women involved. And I must warn you, some of this gets downright stomach-turning. Ilse Koch was a German overseer at Nazi concentration camps run by her husband, Commandant Karl Otto Koch. Working at Buchenwald and Maschendenek, Koch became infamous for her sadistic, brutal treatment of prisoners. In 1947, she became one of the first prominent Nazis tried by the U.S. military. While at Buchenwald, Koch allegedly engaged in gruesome experiments. Selected tattooed prisoners were murdered and skinned to retrieve the tattooed parts of their bodies. This was allegedly done to help a prison doctor, Eirich Wagner, in his dissertation on tattooing and criminality. In 1940, she built an indoor sports arena, which cost over 250,000 Reichmarks which is approximately $62,500 in U.S. currency, most of which had been seized from the inmates. In 1941, Karl Otto Koch was transferred to Lublin, where he helped establish the Majenidek concentration and extermination camp. 
Elsa Koch remained at Buchenwald until 24 August 1943, when she and her husband were arrested on the orders of Josias von Waldenpedeck Pudmont, SS and police leader for Rebar, who had supervisory authority over Buchenwald. The charges against the Koshes comprised private enrichment, embezzlement, and the murder of prisoners to prevent them from giving testimony. Ilse Kosh was imprisoned until 1944, when she was acquitted for lack of evidence. Her husband was found guilty and sentenced to death by an SS court in Munich and was executed by firing squad on the 5th of April, 1945, in the court of the camp he once commanded. She then lived with her surviving family in the town of Ludwigsburg, where she was arrested by U.S. authorities on the 30th of June, 1945. Kosh and 30 other accused were arraigned before the American military court at Dachau, General Military Government Court, for the trial of war criminals in 1947. Prosecuting her was future United States Court of Claims Judge Robert L. Kunzig. She was charged with participating in a criminal plan for aiding, abetting, and participating in the murders at Buchenwald. Kosh stated in the courtroom that she was eight months pregnant, but on the 19th of August, 1947, she was sentenced to life imprisonment for violation of the laws and customs of war. After the trial received worldwide media attention, survivors' accounts of her actions resulted in others' authors described her abuse of prisoners as sadistic, and the image of her as the concentration camp murderess was current in post-war German society. Kosh was accused of taking souvenirs from the skin of murdered inmates with distinctive tattoos, although those claims were rejected at both of her trials. She was known as the Witch of Buchenwald, die Hex von Buchenwald, by the inmates because of her cruelty and lavishness towards prisoners. She has been nicknamed the Beast of Buchenwald, the Queen of Buchenwald, and the Red Witch of Buchenwald, Butcher Widow, and the Bitch of Buchenwald. In her first trial, General Lucius D. Clay, then interim military governor of the American Zone in Germany, reduced the judgment to four years imprisonment on June 8, 1948, after she had served two years of her sentence on the grounds that there was no convincing evidence that she had selected inmates for extermination in order to secure tattooed skins, or that she possessed any articles made of human skins. The reduction of the sentence resulted in an uproar when it was made public on September 16, 1948, but Clay stood firm by its decision. Years later, Clay stated, There was absolutely no evidence in the trial transcript other than she was a rather loathsome creature that would support the death sentence. I suppose I received more abuse for that than anything else I did in Germany. Some reporter had called her the bitch of Buchenwald, had written that she had lampshades made of human skin in her house, and that she was introduced in court where it was absolutely proven that the lampshades were made out of goat skin. In addition to that, her crimes were primarily against the German people. They were not war crimes against American or allied prisoners. Later, she was tried by a German court for her crimes and sentenced to life imprisonment. But they had clear jurisdiction. We did not. The Buchenwald Memorial Foundation states that, for the existence of a lampshade from human skin, there are two credible witnesses who made statements under oath. Dr. Gustav Werdner, Austrian political prisoner, capo of the infirmary, and Josef Ackermann, a political prisoner and secretary of the camp doctor, Waldemar Hoven. Werger explained, one day at about the same time, 1941, the camp commandant Koch and the SS doctor Mueller appeared at my work command in the infirmary. At that time, a lampshade made of tanned, tattooed human skin was being prepared for Kosh. Kosh and Mueller chose among the available tanned, parchment-thin human skin, the ones with suitable tattoos for the lampshade. From the conversation between the two, it became clear that previously chosen motifs had not pleased Ilse Kosh. The lampshade was then completed and handed over to Kosh. Dr. Hans Mueller, later SS physician in Obersalzburg, 
was a pathologist in Buchenwald from March 1941 to April 1942. The time period can be defined more precisely through Ackerman's statement. Ackerman delivered the lamp as he testified in 1950 in court. The lamp foot was made from a human foot and shin bone. On the shade, one saw tattoos and even nipples. On the occasion of the birthday party of Kosh August 1941, he was tasked by the camp doctor, Hoven, to bring the lamp to the Kosh's villa. This he did. One of the party guests told him later that the presentation of the lamp had been a huge success. The lamp immediately disappeared after the SS leadership learned about it. Ilse Kosh could not be accused of making the lampshade. Under the pressure of public opinion, and Kosh was rearrested in 1949 and tried before a West German court. The second trial opened on November 27, 1950, before the district court at Augsburg and lasted seven weeks, during which 250 witnesses were heard, including 50 for the defense. Kosh collapsed and had to be carried from the court in late December 1950, and again on January 11, 1951. At least four witnesses for the prosecution testified that they had seen Kosh choose tattoo prisoners, who were then killed, or had seen or been involved in the process of making human skin lampshades from tattooed skin. However, this charge was dropped by the prosecution when they could not prove lampshades or any other items were actually made from human skin. On January 15, 1951, the court pronounced its verdict in a 111-page long decision for which Kosh was not present in court. It was concluded that the previous trials in 1944 and 1947 were not a bar to proceedings under the principle of nias bin endiem, as at the 1944 trial Kosh had only been charged with receiving while in 1947, she had been accused of crimes under foreigners after September 1st, 1939, and not with crimes against humanity, of which Germans and Austrians had been defendants both before and after that date. She was convicted of charges of incitement to murder, incitement to attempted murder, and incitement to the crime of committing grievous bodily harm. On the 15th of January 1951, was sentenced to life imprisonment and permanent forfeiture of civil rights. On May 10th, 1950, Kosh was indicted by Dr. Hans Icklow, chief prosecutor at the Superior Court in Augsburg. On June 15, 1951, Kosh officially started her life imprisonment sentence. Kosh appealed to have the judgment quashed, but the appeal was dismissed on April 22, 1952 by the Federal Court of Justice. She later made several petitions for a pardon, all of which were rejected by the Bavarian Ministry of Justice. Kosh protested her life sentence to no avail to the International Human Rights Commission. Kosh hung herself at Auschwitz Women's Prison on September 1, 1967, at the age of 60. She experienced delusions that had become convinced that concentration camp survivors would abuse her in her cell. In 1971, her son Uwe sought posthumous rehabilitation for her mother. Via the press, he used clemency documents from her former lawyer in 1957 and his impression of her based on their relationship in an attempt to change people's attitudes toward Kosh. The family bond she had was obviously strong, so strong in fact, that her own son fought to help others see what his wretched mother was really a decent person, perhaps caught up in the fervor of a tyrannical leader. Being objective is important, but for her crimes, she deserved everything she received, and may the spirits that tormented her in the sleeping world continue to haunt her in her grave. Maria Mandel was an Austrian SS helper known for her role in the Holocaust as a top-ranking official at the Auschwitz-Birkenau extermination camp, where she is believed to have been directly complicit in the deaths of over 500,000 prisoners. During her trial, there were first-hand accounts of Mandel's treatment of prisoners upon arrival to Auschwitz, the most notable from Jewish prisoner Salah Fedir on December 1, 1947, to the district court in Krakow. In August 1943, I was deported together with my family, 27 people, including 9 children aged from 1 month to 11 years, from the ghetto near Auschwitz 
in a transport numbering some 5,000 people. At the camp in Birkau, the transport was awaited by the defendant Mandel, accompanied by SS woman Margot Dreschel, and as soon as the transport had arrived, Mandel carried out a selection, sending approximately 90% of the transport to the cars which transported these people to the nearby crematorium. During these selections, defendant Mandel tortured the prisoners in a cruel way, beating the women, the men and the children with a whip, and kicking them blindly. She would tear the children from the arms of their mothers, and when the mothers tried to come near the children to defend them, Mandel would beat the mothers horribly and kick them. I saw, right next to me, a young 20-year-old mother who tried to go near her two-year-old child thrown into the car, and Mandel kicked and beat her so cruelly that she didn't get up anymore. I held my four-year-old child by the hand. The defendant Mandel approached me, tore my child away from me, and threw the child onto a still empty car, so the child got wounded in the face and began to cry and call me, but I was put aside to the group that wasn't loaded onto the cars. When I tried to reach the child, crying on the car, Mandel began to beat me so cruelly that I fell. Mandel continued to kick me although I was lying on the ground, and she knocked out almost all of my teeth with her shoe. Sala's tale continues with a description of Margot Dreschel's mass torture of women involving the infamous Block 25 in Auschwitz. In my block, which is Block 15, 700 women were chosen out of 1,000, and the whole camp, that is, in Lager A, where we stayed in this so-called quarantine, Mandel selected several thousand women, and all of them, naked, were crammed into one block, number 25, where they stayed for seven days and nights without food or water. On the night of 27 September, they were transported to the crematorium. For the period of these seven days, we heard horrible screams and groans issuing from that block, and when the women were taken to the crematorium, the block elder, a Slovakian woman named Silia, who had already been tried in Czechoslovakia, told us that after those seven days, there were more corpses than living people in that block and that almost all of them had bitten fingers and breasts and plucked out eyes. During these seven days, if any prisoner wanted to carry water or some food to that block, she was arrested there and perished along with the rest. The above described selection was carried by the defendant Mandel in person, with the help from Kapos, Stenya, Leo, and Maria, all of them cruel and used to torturing the prisoners in a horrible manner. The United States Army arrested Mandel on August 10, 1945. Interrogations reportedly revealed her to be highly intelligent and dedicated to her work in the camps. For some time she was held at Dachau prison and was filmed by the U.S. Army in May 1946, sharing a cell with Elizabeth Rupert. Mandel was handed over to Poland in November 1946 and November 1947. She was tried in a Krakow courtroom in the Auschwitz trial and sentenced to death. Stanislawa Rachilawa, a Polish survivor of Auschwitz who was an inmate under Mandel's administration and, after the war, was arrested by Poland's post-war communist authorities as an anti-communist activist, was imprisoned in the cell next to Maria Mandel and Therese Brandel. She was proficient enough in German to interpret for the wardens. She stated that the last time she and the two German war criminals met, after they had been sentenced to death and shortly before their executions took place, both had asked her for forgiveness. Mandel was hung on January 24, 1948, aged 36. A little late for apologies, although at least this despicable cretin showed some remorse for her actions at the end of her miserable short life. Be that as it may, you indeed reap what you sow. Not all female guards were immediately executed. Some were showed mercy. Herda Both, for example, was inducted into Nazism at the age of 17 into the League of German Girls, which was the women's Hitler Youth. In September 1942, Both became the overseer camp guard at the Nazi German Ravensbrück concentration camp for women. The former nurse took a four-week training course and was sent as an overseer to the Stutthof camp near Danzig. There she became known as the sadist of Stutthof due to her brutal beatings of prisoners. Both was sent to many subcamps, 
but on the 21st of January 1945, the 24-year-old Both accompanied a death march of women prisoners from central Poland to the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp near Sel. While en route to Bergen-Belsen, she and the prisoners stayed temporarily at Auschwitz concentration camp, arriving at Belsen between the 26th and 1st of February 1945. Once in the camp, Both supervised a group of 60 women prisoners. The camp was liberated on April 15, 1945. She is said to have been the tallest woman arrested. She was 6 foot 3. Both also stood up from other overseers because while most of the SS women wore black jackboots, she was in ordinary civilian shoes. The Allied soldiers forced her to place corpses of dead prisoners into mass graves adjacent to the main camp. She recalled in an interview some 60 years later that, while carrying the corpses, they were not allowed to wear gloves, and she was terrified of contracting typhus. She said the dead bodies were so rotten that the arms and legs tore away when they were moved. She also recalled the emaciated bodies were still heavy enough to cause her considerable back pain. Both was arrested and taken to a prison in cell. At the Belson trial, she was characterized as a ruthless overseer and sentenced to 10 years in prison for using a pistol on prisoners. Both admitted to striking inmates with her hands for camp violations like stealing, but maintained that she never beat anyone with a stick or rod and added that she never killed anyone. Her contention of innocence was deemed questionable as one Bergen-Belsen survivor claimed to have witnessed Both beat a Hungarian Jew named Ava to death with a wooden block, while another teenager stated that he saw her shoot two prisoners for reasons he could not understand. Nevertheless, she was released early from prison on December 22, 1951 as an act of leniency by the British government. In a very rare interview in 1999, Both exclaimed that she had no regrets about her decision to be a guard because if she had not signed up, she would have been shot or worse, thrown into a camp herself. While this is pure speculation at best, and maybe a final plea for sympathy shortly before her death in 2000, we'll never truly know. Escape is not certain for these guards, even if they think they were clear once they hit U.S. soil. Her main Bronsteiner Ryan was a guard at Ravensbrook, and the first female guard to be extradited from the U.S. to face trial in the western part of Germany. She was known to prisoners of Maginek concentration camp as a stomping mare and was said to have beaten prisoners to death, thrown children by their hair onto trucks that took them to be murdered in gas chambers, hanged young prisoners, and stomped an old prisoner to death with her jackboots. Like a lot of female guards, she had hopes of becoming a nurse, but had decided to become a guard after hearing about the pay. On October 16, 1942, Braunsteiner assumed her duties in the Forced Labor Apparel Factory at the Maginek Concentration Camp. Established near Lubden, Poland a year later, it was both a labor camp and extermination camp with gas chambers and crematoria. She was promoted to assistant wardess in January 1943, along with five other camp guards. By then, most of the overseers had been moved into Maginek from the Alter Flughen labor camp. Bronsteiner had a number of roles in the camp and was known for her wild temper tantrums and fits of rage. She involved herself in selections of women and children to be sent to the gas chambers and whipped several women to death. According to one witness at her later trial in Dusseldorf, she seized children by their hair and threw them on trucks saying to the gas chambers. Other survivors testified how she killed women by stomping on them with her steel-studded jackboots. If that wasn't sickening enough, for her service, she received War Merit Cross second class. In January 1944, Braunsteiner was ordered back to Ravensbrück and Maginek began evacuations due to the approaching front line. She was promoted to supervising wardess at the Gunthen subcamp of Ravensbrück, located outside Berlin. Witnesses say that she abused many of the prisoners with a horsewhip she carried, killing at least two women with it. A French physician who was interned at Genthin recalled the sadism of Braunsteiner while she ruled the camp. I watched her administer 25 lashes with a riding crop to a young Russian girl suspected of having tried sabotage. Her back was full of lashes, but I was not allowed to treat her immediately. On May 7, 1945, Braunsteiner fled the camp ahead of the Soviet Red Army. She then returned to Vienna, but soon left complaining that there was insufficient food. 
The Austrian police arrested her and turned her over to the British military occupation authorities. She remained incarcerated from May 6, 1946 until April 18, 1947. According Graz, Austria convicted her of torture, maltreatment of prisoners, and crimes against humanity and against human dignity at Ravensbrück, then sentenced her to serve three years beginning April 7, 1948. She was released early in April 1950. An Austrian civil court subsequently granted her amnesty from further prosecution there. She worked at low-level jobs in hotels and restaurants until emigrating. In 1958, she met her future husband and emigrated to Nova Scotia and later Queens, New York City, and became a housewife. Nazi hunter Simon Weisenthal tracked her down while on a trip to Tel Aviv, thanks to other concentration camp survivors who had done their own investigating. In 1964, Simon alerted the New York Times of the situation, and a young reporter named Joseph Leveld managed to get her address. Bronsteiner said she knew this day would come. And was taken into custody. In 1968, her citizenship was denaturalized. In 1973, there was a slew of red tape in the courts claiming double jeopardy and a lack of probable cause could not take place. Neither could extradition due to a non-German committing these acts. However, she had to sit and listen to the testimony from many survivors of the camps that she had assisted in overseeing, remarking on her brutality and deaths they witnessed at her hands. On August 7, 1973, Bronsteiner became the first Nazi war criminal to be extradited from the U.S. to West Germany. Upon arriving, courts argued that she could not be tried in Germany due to her being Austrian, but at the time of the atrocities, she had been a German citizen committing these acts in the name of the German Reich. Nevertheless, she and 15 others stood trial where witnesses told stories of Bronsteiner's malicious nature. A total of three trials took place, one being in Dusseldorf lasting 474 sessions, making it the most expensive trial in West Germany. The court found insufficient evidence on six counts of the indictment and convicted her on three, the murder of 80 people, abetting the murder of 102 children, and collaborating in the murder of 1,000 people. On June 30th, 1981, the court imposed a life sentence, a more severe punishment than those meted out to her co-defendants. It was there that she remained until 1996, where health complications, such as diabetes and a leg amputation, led her to be released early and died a few years later in 1999 at home. How unfortunate that she couldn't spend the rest of her days in an icy, lonely prison cell with nothing but thoughts to keep her company in her own private hell, and instead died cozy and warm, most likely with new friends. Some might argue that she was old, sick, and had done her time. Tell that to the thousands of emaciated, helpless, and defenseless prisoners that she killed with extreme prejudice. Dorothea Binz was a Nazi German officer and supervisor at Ravensbrück. Originally volunteering for kitchen duty, she was promoted to overseer shortly after. Though she worked under high-ranking guards, Binz was known as the true star of the camp, and the chief guard was completely overshadowed by her deputy. She worked in various parts of the camp, including the kitchen and laundry. Later, she is said to have supervised the bunker where prisoners were tortured and killed. She began as deputy director of her penal block in September of 1940 and became director of the cell block in the summer of 1942. Binz was unofficially promoted to deputy chief wardress in July of 1943. The promotion was made official in February 1944. Her abuse was later described as unyielding. She was known to watch for the weakest and most fearful prisoners, whom she would then shower with lashes or blows. As a member of the command staff between 1943 and 1945, she directed training and assigned duties to her 100 female guards at one time. Binz reportedly trained some of the cruelest female guards in the system as well. At Ravensbrook, the young Binz is said to have beaten, slapped, kicked, shot, whipped, stomped, and abused prisoners continuously. Witnesses testified that when she appeared at the roll call, silence fell. She reportedly carried a whip in hand, along with a leashed German shepherd, and at a moment's notice would kick prisoners to death or select them to be killed. 
She reportedly had a boyfriend in the camp, an SS officer, Edmund Browning. The couple reportedly went on romantic walks around the camp to watch prisoners being flogged, after which they would stroll away laughing. They lived together in a house outside the camp walls until late 1944, when Browning was transferred to Buchenwald Concentration Camp. Binns fled Ravensbrück during the Death March, was captured on May 3, 1945 by the British in Hamburg, and incarcerated in the Rexinghausen camp, formerly a Buchenwald subcamp. She was tried with SS personnel by a British court at the Ravensbrück war crimes trials. She was convicted of perpetrating war crimes, sentenced to death, and subsequently hanged by a long drop on the gallows at Hamlian Prison by British executioner Albert Pierpoint on May 2nd, 1947. What kind of horrifying human being laughs at the torture and death of others? Not only that, but revels in the misery with a love interest. If there is a seventh circle of hell, this monster belongs on the next level. Juana Bormann was a German prison guard at several Nazi concentration camps. She was one of the oldest guards to frequent the camps. At her trial, Bormann said she had joined the Auxiliary SS in 1938 to earn more money. She first served at the Lichtenberg concentration camp in Saxony with 49 other SS women. In 1939, she was assigned to oversee a work crew at the new Ravensbrück women's camp near Berlin. In March 1942, Bormann was one of a handful of women selected for guard duty at Auschwitz in occupied Poland. Short in stature, she was known for her cruelty. Victims called her Weasel and the Woman with the Dogs. In October 1942, Bormann went to Auschwitz-Birkenau as overseer. Shortly after, she was moved to Buddy, a subcamp, where she continued her prisoner abuse. In 1944, as German losses mounted, Bormann was transferred to the auxiliary camp at Hindenburg, which is present-day Poland, in Silesia. In January 1945, she returned to Ravensbrück. In March, she arrived at her last post, Bergen-Belsen, near Sel. On April 15, 1945, the British Army took Bergen-Belsen, fighting over 10,000 corpses and 60,000 survivors. The Liberators forced all SS personnel to carry the dead. Bormann was later incarcerated and interrogated by the military then prosecuted at the Belsen trial, which lasted from September 17, 1945 to November 17, 1945. The court heard testimony relating to murders she had committed at Auschwitz and Belsen, sometimes unleashing her big bad wolfhound German Shepherd on helpless prisoners. She was found guilty and hanged on December 13, 1945. The executioner later remarked that Bormann looked frail and haggard as she limped down the corridor trembling as they weighed her, where she said, I have my feelings, which were reportedly her final words. Using dogs to incite fear and do your dirty work is even worse than if you did it yourself, putting a creature in charge of ending someone's life that, quite literally, has no dog in the fight. To say that she had feelings negates the very essence of her humanity, and underlines her hypocrisy. Elizabeth Volkenrath was a supervisor at several camps, but started her adult life as an unskilled worker before volunteering. She began in October 1941 at Ravensbrück Concentration Camp as a low-level guard. In March 1942, she was sent to Auschwitz-Birkenau, where she worked in the same function as at Ravensbrück. At Auschwitz, she met SS Rottenfuhrer Heinz Volkenrath, who had worked there since 1941 as SS Blockfuhrer. The couple married in 1943. Elizabeth Volkenrath participated in the selection of prisoners for the gas chambers and, in November 1944, was promoted to supervising wardress for all camp sections for female prisoners at Auschwitz. Elizabeth Volkenrath was transferred to Bergen-Belsen when Auschwitz was closed. From February 1945, she was also the supervising wardress at Bergen-Belsen. In April 1945, Volkenrath was arrested by the British Army and was tried in the Belsen trial at which she was convicted of war crimes. Sentenced to death, she was executed by hanging at Hamlin Prison by Albert Pierpoint on December 13, 1945. 
Volkenrath was one of the few female concentration camp supervisors to marry one of their male superiors, and also one of the few with lesser known atrocities under their belt. Whether this was because she was a higher rank working behind the scenes not seen much by prisoners or not, we will probably never know. Suffice it to say, she still deserved to answer for her crimes. Herta Ellart was stationed at Ravensbrück on November 15, 1939, ordered by the SS to work through the labor exchange. She stated, I had to see that civilian workers did not mix with the prisoners, and later on I was detailed to working parties outside camp. In October 1942, she was transferred to the Maginek camp near Lublin. She claimed she was moved as a punishment for being too nice to the prisoners by not giving them harsh enough punishments and helping to feed them. However, according to the Belson trial, she received a bonus as well as better working conditions at this camp. By mid-1944, she was transferred to Krakow. SS officers there noticed she was too lenient, polite, and helpful to the prisoners, so the SS returned her to Ravensbrück to undergo another training course, this time by Dorothea Binns. During this time, Elhart divorced her husband. After World War II, Ellert described the training course at Ravensbrück as physically and emotionally demanding. Helena Nelkin described Ellart at Plaslau in these words, Immensely obese, sly, vicious in character, and an absolute master in using the whip. She was the overseer in charge of the kitchen. Through a small window, she would spy on the Jewish women while they were at work peeling potatoes or onions, washing dishes, and doing other chores necessary in the kitchen. Once, Ellard even ordered the women who were at work to undress completely. After they had stripped, Ellard searched each one extremely thoroughly, looking no doubt for rings, money, wristwatches, and other valuables. She remained at her job until the final liquidation of the Plazao camp. She, too, was on the death march when the time came for us to retreat along with Germans, one witness had testified to. Ellart was later moved to the Auschwitz concentration camp, where she oversaw women commanding slave labor groups. Ellart later served as a guard at the Auschwitz subcamp in Raskow, Poland, before she was transferred to the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp, where she became deputy wardess. When the British Army liberated the Belsen camp, Ellart was arrested and tried at the Belsen trial. She was defendant number eight during the trial. While on trial, Ellart was asked if she had committed theft witnessed severe beatings, had committed murder, and so on, to which she had denied most accusations. She was remanded along with all 45 defendants and pleaded not guilty to all charges. She was found guilty at Belsen and innocent at Auschwitz. She was sentenced to 15 years in prison, but was given early release on May 7, 1953. After the war, Ellert lived under the assumed name Herta Naumann. She died in April 97 aged 92. It is entirely possible that this woman was coerced into gruesome acts and did more good than bad, but that doesn't excuse her from anything she did. At least there was a glimmer of remorse in humanity there. That is, until it was stripped away later by pure spiteful animals that commanded the camps with a rotting fist. Emma Zimmer was an overseer at Lichtenberg Ravensbrück in Auschwitz-Birkenau. Like Juana Bormann, she was also one of the older guards to participate in the final solution. In 1938, she became a guard at Lichtenberg camp, where she became assistant camp leader. In 1939, she was assigned to Ravensbrook, where she served as assistant chief leader. In October 1942, she became assistant camp leader at Birkenau as an overseer. On June 1st, 1943, one month before her 55th birthday, she was granted permission to stay on staff as a female overseer at Ravensbrook despite her age. She was one of the first chief woman officers at Ravensbrook and took an active part in the selection of internees to be gassed during 1941 at the Bernberg Euthanasia Center near Berlin. Zimmer was known in the camp for being brutal and sadistic in her guard duties. At Auschwitz, she was particularly feared. She was old, mean, vicious, dangerous, and frightening us constantly with threats, proclaiming in a sadistic voice, I will report you, and then you will go away. You know where? Just one way up the chimney. We hated her, and we were scared of her. She was also awarded the War Merit Cross second class without swords. 
Zimmer stood trial at the 7th Ravensbrook trial and was sentenced to death for her war crimes. She was hanged on the gallows at Heimlin Prison in 1948. It is scary to know that some of these women were rewarded and honored for their willingness to break down, intimidate, and unapologetically massacre defenseless men, women, and children. The mindset that these individuals had are the stuff of pure nightmare fuel. Ruth Clausius Newdeck was a supervisor at Barth, which was a subcamp at Ravensbrook. In 1944, she arrived at the Ravensbrook concentration camp to begin her training to be a camp guard. Newdeck soon began impressing her superiors with her unbending brutality towards the female prisoners, resulting in her promotion to the rank of barrack overseer. In the Ravensbrook camp, she was known as one of the most ruthless female guards. Former French prisoner Genevieve commented after the war that she had seen Newdeck cut the throat of an inmate with the sharp edge of her shovel. She was later promoted to the rank of overseer and moved to the Uckermark extermination complex down the road from Ravensbrook. There she involved herself in the selection and execution of over 5,000 women and children. In 1945, she became the chief wardress of Barth. In 1945, she fled the camp but was later captured and detained in prison while the British Army investigated the allegations against her. In April 1948, she stood accused at the Third Ravensbrook trial along with other women of the SS. She admitted to the accusations of murder and maltreatment made against her. The British court found Nudek guilty of war crimes and sentenced her to death by hanging in 1948 in Hamlin Prison. Straightforward brutality and no remorse. Even a shred of humanity had left this woman's mind the moment Hitler decided extermination was the way forward for the fatherland. There are many other female guards that participated in the gut-wrenching acts involving Jews and other people they deemed not part of the Aryan master race, but covering them all would certainly be overkill. Instead, I direct your attention to my last entry, and arguably the most notable female SS guard who is maybe most depraved of them all. Irma Ilse Ida Gries was the warden at Bergen-Belsen concentration camp, formerly a guard at Ravensbrück in Auschwitz. Nicknamed by survivors as the Hyena of Auschwitz, she was the youngest woman to die judiciously under British law in the 20th century. Irma was born to dairy workers and had five siblings. When Irma was a teenager, her mother committed suicide after drinking hydrochloric acid after discovering her father's affair with a pub owner's daughter. Most of her family were Nazi party members, but Irma volunteered for the SS despite her father's protests. She quit school at 15 and served as a nurse at an SS sanatorium. Before her 18th birthday, she moved to the SS Female Helpers Training Base, which is located near Ravensbrook, and volunteered to work there. Greece was also promoted to a guard position at Auschwitz-Birkenau. In 1942, she became an overseer at Ravensbrück and transferred to Auschwitz-Birkenau in March 1943. Due to her transfer, Greece had a falling out with her father the same year and expelled her from his home. In 1944, she was promoted to Rapporteur, the second highest rank possible for female concentration camp wardens. Greece participated in prisoner selections for the gas chambers at Auschwitz. In 1945, Greece accompanied a prisoner evacuation transport from Auschwitz to Ravensbrück. In March, she went to Bergen-Belsen along with a large number of prisoners for Ravensbrück. She was shortly captured by the British Army along with other SS personnel who did not flee. Greece was among the 45 people accused of war crimes at the Belsen trial, which were held in Lundberg, Lower Saxony. She was tried over the first period of the trials, which lasted around four months, and was represented by Major L. Cranfield. The trials were conducted under British military law, based on charges derived from the Geneva Convention of 1929 regarding the treatment of prisoners. The accusations against her centered on her ill-treatment and murder of those imprisoned at the camps. Survivors provide a detailed testimony of cruelties. They also claim that she beat some women using a plated whip. Greece provided testimony going over her background being poor 
having virtually no real education, and that she tried to become a nurse multiple times, only to be turned away and forced to serve at each concentration camp by the labor exchange. These reports are not corroborated by anyone she served with, and most evidence points to her being a willing participant. During the trial, the press labeled Greece as the Beautiful Beast, alongside Joseph Kramer, also known as the Beast of Belsen, the former commandant at Birkenau. After a nine-week trial, Greece was sentenced to death by hanging. Although the charges against some of the other female warders were as serious as those against Greece, she was one of the only female guards to be sentenced to death. As the verdicts were read, Greece was the only prisoner to remain defiant. Her subsequent appeal was rejected. According to Wendy Adele Marie Sarti, the night before execution, Greece sang Nazi songs until the early hours of the morning, along with other convicted female guards. Greece was led to the gallows in 1945. The women were executed one by one via long drop hanging, and then the men in pairs. The executioner noted that Greece had no emotion or any remorse, stating her last words were schnell or quickly. She has been portrayed in movies such as Pierpoint, Out of the Ashes, and in non-speaking role reenactment in Auschwitz, The Nazis, and The Final Solution. Being brought up in poverty, in a country still economically struggling after World War I, leads to lots of resentment and hatred that festers in the younger generations. Irma Greece is one of the many cerebral casualties of just the right amount of circumstance, opportunity, and reasoning to funnel her hatred towards those that deserve none. The many souls that she helped extinguish from this world during one of the darkest points of human history have their justice, although it will never fully heal the memories of those that lived to tell the tales. And so at last, we've approached the end. It must be a lot to absorb. Torture, death, tragedy, suffering, corruption, countless evil, and other unspeakables. The truth is, those who don't learn from the past are doomed to repeat it, and that sentiment is now more important than ever. Gender matters not. Sinister intentions can apply to all walks of life. Keep an open mind, and try to be kinder to each other. History can ill afford further destruction at our own hands. Thank you so much for joining me next to the fire, and keeping an old soul company. Until next time, be safe and stay curious.